Good morning, Mercy Road. How are we doing? Hey, if you're joining us online or in person and we haven't met, my name is Mike Lotzer. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, we are in a series on the book of Jonah and what a book it is, what a story it is. Jonah is a prophet of God, and essentially, it starts off like this. Jonah, I need you to go tell the Ninevites, the group of people you really don't like, that have made your life really miserable, that they should repent and change their ways. I'm going to give them an opportunity to receive my mercy. And Jonah says, what? No, I'm not going to do that. And he turns in the opposite direction, and he goes as far and as fast away from where he's supposed to be. He completely disobeys Yahweh, the one true God, who he has to this point faithfully obeyed and been a prophet, a, a preacher of truth and of warning and a declarer of God's glory. He, he disobeys God, and then he's on a ship, and, and God sends a storm to, to give us, uh, to give him a, a second chance, if you will, a course correction. And he's thrown off the ship because Jonah is uh, napping in the hull of the ship, and the sailors are saying, this is a supernatural storm. What are we doing? And uh, which local deity is responsible for this? And Jonah kind of owns up, and uh, effectually, Jonah says, just throw me overboard. That'll solve it. And the sailors are good to him. They said, are you sure? That's drastic. Can we do anything else? But eventually, Jonah takes a swim with the fish. Literally, he's then eaten by this fish, and he is contemplating from inside the belly of the whale. And last week we looked at how important it is to have language when you're at the bottom. And I'd like to reinforce that. If you're taking notes, the first thing to notice here, going back in review of chapter 2, is this. Jonah is so soaked in Scripture, he has words when words fail. He's so soaked in Scripture. He would have likely memorized the entire Psalter, the book of Psalms, 150 of them. And so he has at his mental grasp when he's in the dark, when he's at the bottom, any psalm of his choosing. Do you? Are you the type of person that has immersed yourself in God's word enough to have anything to say in those moments where words seem to fail? Almost always. There's no words to respond. I, one of the hardest things I've endured was finding a fellow officer and friend in Iraq in a combat zone who had taken his own life. And then another captain had to go back and get, tell the command. And so that was 30 minutes with me and my friend who shot himself. And, and that's a moment where words failed. And, and for me, I'm so grateful that I memorized as a child Psalm 23. And I said that over and over. And then about 10 minutes in, I, I came to the conclusion I should have memorized more psalms. And that really pushed me to take more seriously the immersion of my mind as a young pastor or a young chaplain then in Scripture. I can promise you this. You will have moments, if you have not already, that will be tragic. Some you will bring upon yourself, like Jonah did. Some will be the result of others' actions or sin in the whole system. But in those moments when words fail, what are you going to say? What prayer are you going to pray? Jonah has language because he has memorized in advance of this unfortunate event. He has language to cry out to God. 
He, he references the pit of Sheol. Let's, let's read just a, a little review of what he, he did say in chapter 2. We can get that on the screen. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. The realm of the dead is translated the pit of Sheol um, in other translations. Do you see what he's doing? He's finding God's circumstances of old in the past, language that fits his experience, and he's crying out and communicating with God in the, the prayer book language of the Bible. I called out for help, and you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. We could go on, but I don't want to spend too much time reviewing. Chad and Ari did a great job last week talking about that chapter. But one thing that is important to add to that chapter is not the fact that he had the language, it's the psalms and the type of psalms Jonah chose to pray. If you would have memorized all of the 150 psalms, you would know that Jonah is essentially creating on the spot a mixtape, a compilation of lament psalms. Lament psalms. Do you know what they are? A lament is a lamentation. It's, it's a complaint. It's acknowledging something hurts. But here's, here's kind of a quick and dirty definition of lament psalms. And we, we need to know this because a third of the whole psalms are lament psalms. They're brutally honest. They remind God of his commitment to his people. They're me telling God who God is and his nature and his character. They promise to praise and glorify God in return for God's help. Those are kind of three elements of a lamentation, a lament psalm. A lament psalm is what you pray when your spouse is diagnosed with cancer. When you find out that your child was abused. When somebody who wasn't on their phone and was driving perfectly fine but just slipped on the ice, T-boned, your family's minivan with your wife and kids. A lament psalm is, is a perfect psalm when, when you're not the reason that you find yourself in the mess. There's no direct causation. You didn't cause this. You just happen to be at the wrong end of the tragic part of life right now. And so you cry out in honesty to God. And some of us were raised in homes where you couldn't express lament because you, you had to have a stiff upper lip and you can't be brutally honest with God and just say, this hurts so bad. And if that's you, you need to know your heavenly father already knows everything. And he delights when we bring total brutal honesty to him. God, this hurts. God, why me? God, I can't see how we'll get through this. That's an important psalm to know. That's an important muscle to develop in your prayer life. And Jonah knows how to do it. 
And, and you see this in chapter two. He's reminding God, hey, you're Yahweh, the one true God, and you deliver people. And so now you need to deliver me, God. That's your nature. That's what you do. So now do it. And when you do that, I will publicly give you the credit and your name will be magnified and more people will know how wonderful you are, God. He's pulling a mixtape of lament psalms. Here's the problem. He picked the wrong type of psalm. One thing that lament psalms do not do is acknowledge personal responsibility of guilt. There's a different type of psalm for that. Jonah should have cried out to God with a penitential psalm. That's just a theological term for a type of prayer that acknowledges that you are guilty of sin and rebellion and misconduct and you don't know how to make this right. You can't make it right, but only God can make it right. The, the premier penitential psalm, there are many of them, and Jonah would have memorized all of them. The premier one you would expect a guy like Jonah to reach for in the belly of the whale is Psalm 51. This, of course, comes when King David has an affair, and then he has the married woman's husband, who's also a good friend of his and a fellow veteran, they fought wars together, has him killed to cover up the affair. And the prophet Nathan confronts David and said, you need to, you need to own this behavior. And so it, he's just broken. And out of that place of brokenness, we get Psalm 51, one of the more practical penitential psalms that exists in the Psalter. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. That's my favorite uh, term, unfailing love. One word in Hebrew, it's hesed. It's, it's the way that God loves us. It's unbreakable love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgression. So it's similar to a lament psalm. It involves reminding God what God's character is like. Hey, you're the God who loves people with an unbreaking love. So according to that love, please have mercy on me because it's your nature. But now to the part why I need mercy. Wash away all my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Have you ever felt like that? You're in a pattern of rebellion or you committed an act of betrayal or sin or whatever and you just, your conscience is like inflamed. The bad part about living in a constant state like that is you start to feel guilty for stuff that you're not even supposed to feel guilty for and, and it just drains your battery. It's no way to live and if that's you right now, you might need Psalm 51 and you might need to just reconcile some things with God. That's where David's living right now. I know my transgression, my sin is always before me, but that's not where, where Jonah's living. He should be living there. He should be like, I'm in the guts of a fish. It smells in here, it's dark, it's a miracle that I'm alive somehow. Clearly, God is not allowing me to fail because his love for the Ninevites is so vast and mysterious that he's just forcing me to, to stay alive. Jonah tried to kill himself and God wouldn't let him do it. And Jonah should be saying, my transgression, my sin, it's always before me, God. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. As a theological side note, that's a very important thing to get straight. When we sin against people, we of course hurt them, but because people are made in the image of God, every single one of them, we're ultimately first and foremost, hurting God. It's not that David is unaware that he hurt Bathsheba and Uriah, who he had killed, 
and the kingdom and the reputation and to some extent God's rescue plan in that part of history, he knows he's caused damage and hurt to a lot of people, but he sees in this moment of penitentiary posturing before God and saying, I get it. Ultimately, every act of sin, it hurts your heart. I'm sorry. And Jonah, he's just not there. He doesn't see what David saw. You are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And this is what Jonah misses. God, you're God. I'm not God. You get to be God. I'm underqualified for that job description. I don't see why you should show any mercy, give them an opportunity, even an inch of mercy and grace to those Ninevites. They're terrible, hostile, brutal people. They deserve punishment and judgment, and that's it. But if you want to do that, you're right in your verdict. You're justified when you judge that they should be given a chance. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom even in that secret place. This is a really important worldview part of this penitentiary psalm. People are not basically good. If you believe that, you're going to have a hard time in life. People are created in the image of a good God, but we are unfortunately basically selfish and prone to sin on this side of eternity. And David sees this nuanced realistic way of looking at the world. Surely I was sinful even at birth. He gets that sin is like a virus you're born with. But then he contrasts it and says, but that's not a license to do whatever I want. Even then you desired faithfulness, even in the womb. From my very beginning of consciousness, your Holy Spirit was reaching out to me, trying to shape me into the man that you want me to be, that you will grow me up into the eternal man or woman, that I will be one day. And so holiness is this never-ending march of progress towards perfection. And David's understanding that. So what does he ask for? He says, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. One of my favorite lines. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Jonah, you missed it, man. That was the psalm, and you memorized the whole thing. It's not like Jonah was like, oh, man, I didn't have my New Testament and my Old Testament copy on me. and It got all gross from the, the stomach acid and the whale. And I wish I would have memorized a few good penitentiary psalms. Wasn't there one like Psalm 51 about David? No, he knew that. He knew that just like you know your address. But he opted for the lament psalm. And we do this too, don't we? We spend years trashing our body. You know, we're supposed to take care of it and exercise. We don't. And then eventually that catches up. And then our first tendency is, God, you just need to miraculously heal me. Fix all this stuff. Knowing full well that this particular medical condition could have been avoided if we just would have obeyed God in the, the first place. That's a small example. But oftentimes, we're stubborn, like Jonah. We're slow to repent to do the right thing. We have to spend some time in the guts of the whale. But even in 
the whale, you, if you're really honest, me too, if there's a way to say, this really isn't my fault at all. So God, I just, I just want to tell you about how much it hurts and now remind you that you need to get me out of this. Oh, and by the way, when you do that, I will praise you publicly and we'll be good again. Lament psalms are perfectly appropriate for those moments in life where it's, the issue is not your sin. The issue is we live in a broken system full of sin and you're really hurting. That's why a third of the psalms are lament psalms. They're very useful and appropriate. But when you have consistently said, no, God, I do what I want to do, not what you want me to do, what I want to do, that calls for a different psalm. But what's stunning here, Mercy Road, God shows mercy on him anyways. Rather than set Jonah straight, God hears his unrepentant cries for mercy and gives him grace, even though Jonah doesn't deserve it, doesn't understand what God is really like, and then proceeds to use Jonah to save Nineveh. That's astounding. I mean, he could have not been whale vomit. He could have been whale... Yeah. But God, God spits him out and gives him a second chance. And if you read chapter 3, it's actually kind of hilarious. He, he's like, fine, I guess I have to go do this. I guess I'll do it, God. And he does it like he's a toddler. And he, and he walks in there and he gives a very half-hearted performance. He's like, repent or whatever. Change your heart or God's going to really destroy all this in about 40 days. And then he about faces and leaves. And then to his astonishment, and outrage, they actually listen to him. And then he picks a different type of psalm that's probably not a real psalm. It's just complaining to God and blaming God. He just says, God, I can't believe this is exactly why I didn't want to do this in the first place. I knew if you gave them a chance, there was a possibility that they would repent. And now they did. And now I got to spend eternity with the Ninevites? Like, come on. Those people, they don't deserve that. And he's right, they don't. But what he doesn't see is he doesn't either. And neither do you. Neither do I. The rest of uh, chapter four of the book is Jonah sitting on a hillside complaining to God. God even gives him some creature comforts, a little shade. And, and then he complains when those are taken away. And God's trying to give him this object lesson, like, you really are bummed out about a plant, a shade plant that I caused to wither. Maybe the way you feel about the plant is a problem because people matter more than plants. And, and he ends the book in an astonishing way. Don't you care about all those people that would die under your plan? And if not them, don't you even care about the animals? It, it, the last line is really funny. It's, what about the animals? And that makes sense if you've ever met a surly person who has gotten really good at practicing not loving people decade after decade, and they've gotten to the point where they can barely tolerate a handful of humans, but gosh, they're fond of their dog. They sure like their cat. And that's what happens when we let our desire for vengeance and justice calcify and harden our heart towards people. You wake up one morning and the only creature that you can really be decent at loving is an animal. It's as if God is saying, don't you care about them? You want me to just 
blow up the whole place? Surely there's a nice golden retriever in there somewhere. What about him? And we're intentionally left to wonder if Jonah did respond to that question. It reminds us of the parable of the older and the younger brother that Jesus would tell. That parable ends with the older brother cross-armed outside of the party, just mad that part of his inheritance money is being spent on his, his wild living brother who dishonored the family. And he's just mad at God's relentless mercy as depicted metaphorically in the father of the story. He won't even join his father in the party. And it's like Jonah's teetering on that line. Will he come into the party? And yet God continues to love both Jonah and the Ninevites. Now, there's some real practical encouragement for for me and for you in this. Think about that. How patient is this God? Everything you've ever thought, every greedy, lustful, bigoted, selfish, hypocritical thought, word, and deed, even the ones you've forgotten about. Everyone is present before God. He can see them. He stands outside of time. Even the ones you're going to do. And all that, because you have accepted the forgiving love of Jesus Christ and you've cut, you're the type of person that, by God's grace, has been led to the conclusion that, yes, I need to be reconciled. I need forgiveness. A big sacrifice would be needed because I can't make this right. I'm like David. I need to pray Psalm 51. I need to say, only you can fix this, God. And because the Holy Spirit opened your eyes and allowed you to see that he did, he sent his son, received that. Now you are the type of person that is on the patient track with the Almighty himself. Second Peter has kind of a, a haunting little line in it. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. He wants that for your neighbor. He wants that for, for your boss who was very unfair to you and fired you unjustly. He wants that for the person who abused you. He wants repentance and the possibility of life change for the family member you don't talk to, for the parent that was a really terrible parent to you and has caused a lifelong list of problems for you. He wants that for the group of people that think so differently than you, that are antagonistic to your way of life, that would love to just see you destroyed. He wants that for every human being on planet Earth who would be remotely open to it, and yet he allows every one of us to choose yes or no. He won't force it. But once you accept it, once you have the Psalm 51 moment and you say, God, I accept you, Jesus Christ, as the Lord and Savior into my life, your death has paid the cost for the sin in my life, the little ones, the big ones, the ones I remember, the ones I can't remember, the ones I will do. Once that happens, you're on the patient track. You will be shown the grace that Jonah is shown. Jonah is acting like a spiritual toddler when he is one of the premier spiritual leaders of God's people. It's not a good look, Jonah. The story starts, you disobey, go here. No, I'll go in the opposite direction. 
You put a bunch of sailors' life at risk because the storms that sin accompany never just affect you. You show no concern for their lives, really. You just kind of pout and you try to kill yourself. And when that doesn't go wrong, you use some really elaborate language. You make a beautiful montage of a lot of lament psalms that conveniently have no iota of Jonah saying, oh, by the way, maybe I caused some of this. You just kind of walk in a wide berth around the very psalm that you should have been praying. And then you reluctantly obey. You don't even try very hard. And then you become the first preacher ever that complains to God because the people actually responded to your sermon and did what you told them to do. And then you close out your story by complaining on a hillside and basically admitting to God that you care a little more for plants and animals and people, especially those people. And yet God doesn't stop loving you? Who is this God? What kind of love is this? Have you ever loved somebody so much? It happens typically with small children right at that age where they stop. They're like maximum cute and they haven't quite got into the hyper obnoxious stage. You know that? But it can happen with a spouse or anybody really. But you love them so much and all of a sudden you have like a little panic attack. Like what if I lost them? And it almost just throws your state of being because it's like I, I can't stop loving her. I can't stop adoring him. It's not based on their performance. It's just, I, I don't know what happened to me, but it's, it's just, I will always love this person, even if they're terrible to me. That's how God feels about you. Sometimes in worship, we've all been there. Probably not here, because Ari does a really great job, but, you know, at other churches. You'll, you'll be worshiping, you don't like the particular song or the style or whatever. That it's too loud. It's too quiet. It's not traditional enough. It's not modern enough. And, and you kind of step out of any mode of worship. And, and there's just really very little vertical exchange between you and God. Here's the way to get out of that. I mean, if it's really just not your style, you might just need to find a different style, I suppose. But if you just want to pull yourself back into vertical alignment with the Holy Spirit and with God, just start to contemplate how patient he's been with you. How patient has God been with you? You're telling me there haven't been times where you have been Jonah, where God told you to do something and you said, ah, no, I don't think it's going to work. doesn't make sense to me. Sounds too old-fashioned. Sounds too modern. Doesn't, no, I won't do that. We're still good, God. You're still, I'll still, I very much appreciate the salvation. Also expect you to provide for me in all ways, financial health and all that. But no, I'm definitely not doing that. There are little examples of that peppered through your life because you're a human and you were born with it. And there are some big ones too. You're telling me that God wouldn't have been justified to say that's enough. It's enough disobedience. We're done here. When you ponder on how patient and how loving he is to you personally, it creates this really interesting response in your heart. It's like, how do I not just open my hands to him and say, thank you. I love you. You are the only one I should worship. 
I should cry out to you. Even if it's embarrassing, I should, I should call out to you. I should tell the world how amazing you are because you are. You can't stop loving me even though I said that, did that, didn't do that. Even though I've acted like a spiritual toddler. Thank you. Both the best and the worst of us desperately need God's mercy and neither one of us deserve it. What do I mean, the best and the worst? Well, Jonah does get a bad rap for obvious reasons. But the original hearers of the book of Jonah would have been stunned to hear about his actions. Why? Because Jonah was one of the best prophets of his era. Most of us don't know that. If you read 2 Kings chapter 14, he does some courageous things. He confronts a leader. He expands God's kingdom. He does everything right. He's one of the good ones. It's like Pastor Chad. I just got back from Florida. What do I do on vacation? I just sit and I'm very inactive. Pastor Chad, he's doing the Berkabiner right now. He, he, he skis 34 miles or something on cross-country skis to relax. He's a really good dude. And if you were to hear a story about Pastor Chad and it said, one time Pastor Chad was told to do something and he did the exact opposite. He ran in the farthest direction and when God tried to correct his course, he pouted. And he tried to wiggle out of that. And then when he couldn't wiggle anymore, he kind of made it seem like it was God's fault <laughs> and God should take care of this. And he conveniently didn't own up to really anything. And you would be hearing this and you'd be like, well, there are a lot of people with the last name Murphy, so he must be talking about somebody else. Because I know Pastor Chad. He's one of the good ones. He wouldn't disobey God like that. He wouldn't be such a spiritual toddler about it. He wouldn't look at an entire group of people with men and women and children have had a very different experience than him and just say, no, scorch them all. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't become so nationalistic and prejudiced and angry and self-focused. He's one of the best. But that's exactly what the original hearers would have been processing when they heard the story of Jonah. And nobody would have been surprised to, to know that the Ninevites were some of the worst. They tortured people as a hobby. Terrible evil. And in one short book, God says, I care about the best among you and the worst among you. And here's a little secret. There's not as big of a difference as you think. Neither of you deserve the mercy and the grace you so desperately need. And I so costly have offered to you. It's a humbling thing. It's a humbling thing to know the God of the universe paid that much to be with you, knows you that deeply, and loves you that ferociously. It'll heal those self-esteem problems you have, those shame issues, the regrets you think about over and over. It'll turn your attention to other people, even those people that are hard to love, even those people sometimes you don't want God to show grace on. It'll soften your heart when you realize both the best and the worst of us desperately need God's mercy. Neither of us deserve it, but that's the good news. That's why the gospel is the good news. We both get it. Friends, as we close today, I just, uh, I want to invite all of us to acknowledge there's a little bit of Jonah in all of us. And let's repent of that and just say, I'm sorry, God. 
I'm going to let you be God. I'm not going to tell you what to do. And I own my rebellion and, and create in me a clean heart and a steadfast spirit. Because sometimes it's all about choosing the right type of song. God, thank you for this book. Thank you for your love. It is mysterious. It is deep. It is life-changing. Help us to know you more deeply and experience your mercy more thoughtfully. For anyone who has heard this series and has never accepted your gracious gift of salvation, would today be that day? Would they cross from death to life? For those of us who have crossed that line, but we have acted like spiritual toddlers for too long, help us to mature and grow up and love like you love people. Soften them, all of our hearts, Lord. Teach us the right prayer to pray, whether we're on dry land or deep in the bottom. In Jesus' name.